The following program was pre-recorded. Welcome to Radioactive, a show for grassroots activists and community builders. I'm Laura Jones. The Roundtable Tuesday team has the night off. April is National Poetry Month, and tonight, we got a special treat for you from our friends at Alternative Radio out of Boulder, Colorado. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, poet, publisher, and defender of freedom of expression, died earlier this year at almost 102 years of age. So reaching into their archives, Alternative Radio shares with us a defense of poetry from Ferlinghetti's reading on July 10th, 1990 at Naropa University and the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics. Before we get there, though, we have a few minutes for rallies and resources. If you visit krcl.org and click on Community Affairs, you'll find a whole listing of rallies and resources such as this. Saturday, May 1st marks the start of Mental Health Awareness Month. Mental Healthy Fit kicks off their activities with shorts and screenings online all the time. It is spring day at Red Acre Farm from 9.30 to 1.30 in Cedar City. They'll have a maypole, an opportunity to plant seeds and story time, baby chicks and goats. The farm stand will also be open. At 2 o'clock in Sugar House Park on Saturday, the Freedom Road Socialist Organization will host a May Day event called Make the Rich Pay and present their People's Agenda. We're hoping to have them on the show tomorrow to talk more about their demands, which include economic relief for all workers, legalization for all immigrants, community control of the police, and they want to stop Asian hate and all white supremacist violence. Coming up next Tuesday, May the 4th, may the 4th be with you, first of all, but from 6 to 7 p.m. online, protecting America's Red Rock Wilderness with the Sierra Club of Utah. You'll hear from Ethan Manuel, director of the Sierra Club's Lands Protection Program, Terry Martin, activist and leader with the Southern Utah Wilderness Alliance, and Kim Crumbo of Utah Sierra Club. You'll learn about America's Red Rock Wilderness Act, scientific arguments for protecting Utah's Red Rock, and a large role the lands play in the importance of establishing and maintaining land connectivity in these wild places. And then I'd like to remind folks that Wednesday, May 12th, is the deadline to submit for SLC Queer LGBTQIA plus art exhibition at Urban Arts Gallery. For more details on how to submit, just visit Rallies and Resources under the Community Affairs tab at krcl.org for all the info and links. When we come back from Alternative Radio, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, A Defense of Poetry, on KRCL Radioactive. We can all help reduce Utah's drought, fix leaks around the house, run full loads in the washer and dishwasher, take shorter showers and hold off on watering landscapes. Reservoirs are low and wildfire risk is high, so let's all do what we can to save water. More information at drought.utah.gov. Support for KRCL comes from the Joan Trump Hour Mulholland Foundation, creators of the Civil Rights Veterans Relief Fund to help veterans of the movement with food, medical housing, and utility bills. Details online at jtmfoundation.org. So what is the use of poetry these days? What use is it? What good is it? These days and nights... In the age of Autogeddon, in which poetry is what has been paved over to make a freeway for armies of the night, as in that Palm Paradiso just north of Nicaragua, where promises made in the plazas will be betrayed in the backcountry. That's Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features Lawrence Ferlinghetti, A Defense of Poetry. Lawrence Ferlinghetti was a great practitioner, publisher, and defender of poetry. He passed away just shy of his 102nd birthday earlier this year. Born in New York in 1919, his university education was paused for World War II and Atlantic and Pacific tours in the U.S. Navy. He witnessed firsthand the ruins of Nagasaki after the atomic bombing in 1945, and he became a committed voice for peace and social justice. He co-created the country's first all-paperback bookstore in San Francisco in 1953. 
Two years later, he launched City Lights Publishers, which featured the work of Kenneth Patchen, Kenneth Rexroth, Denise Levertov, and Allen Ginsberg. The small press got national attention when Ferlinghetti and his partner were arrested on obscenity charges for publishing Ginsberg's poem, Howl. The case, The People of the State of California versus Lawrence Ferlinghetti, proved an important victory for freedom of expression over censorship laws. The bibliography of his published work is extensive. It includes A Coney Island of the Mind, A Far Rockaway of the Heart, and Poetry as Insurgent Art. Lawrence Ferlinghetti read from some of these books in Boulder, Colorado, at Naropa University's summer writing program, hosted by the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics in 1990 and 2000. And now, Lawrence Ferlinghetti. What is poetry? Poetry is news from the far out frontiers of consciousness. Poetry is what we would cry out upon waking in a dark wood in the middle of the journey of our life. A poem is a mirror walking down a high street full of visual delight. Poetry is the shook foil of the imagination. It should shine out and half blind you. It is the sun streaming down in the meshes of morning. It is white nights and mouths of desire. It is made by dissolving halos in oceans of sound. It is the street talk of angels and devils. It is a sofa full of blind singers who have put aside their canes. A poem should arise to ecstasy somewhere between speech and song. A poem must sing and fly away with you, or it's a dead duck with a prose soul. <laughs> Poetry is the anarchy of the senses making sense. Poetry is all things born with wings that sing. Like a bowl of roses, a poem should not have to be explained. Poetry is a voice of dissent against the waste of words and the mad plethora of print. It is what exists between the lines. It is made with the syllables of dreams. It is far, far cries upon a beach at nightfall. It is a lighthouse moving its megaphone over the sea. It is an Arab carrying colored rugs and bird cages through the streets of a great metropolis. A poem can be made of common household ingredients. It fits on a single page, yet it can fill a world and fits in the pocket of a heart. The poet is a street singer who rescues the alley cats of love. Poetry is pillow thought after intercourse. Poetry is the distillation of articulate animals calling to each other across a great gulf. It is a pulsing fragment of the inner life, an untethered music. It is the dialogue of naked statues. It is the sound of summer in the rain and of people laughing between behind closed shutters down an alley at night. It is a bare light bulb in a homeless hotel, illuminating a nakedness of minds and hearts. Let the poet be a singing animal, turn pimp for an anarchist king. Poetry is the incomparable lyric intelligence brought to bear upon 57 varieties of existence. Poetry is a high house echoing with all the voices that ever said anything crazy or wonderful. Poetry is a subversive raid upon the forgotten language of the collective unconscious. Poetry is a real canary in a coal mine. And we know why the caged bird sings. Poetry is the shadow cast by our streetlight imaginations. 
It is the voice of the fourth person, singular. It is, it is the voice within the voice of the turtle. It is the face behind the face of the race. Poetry is made of night thoughts. If it can tear itself away from illusion, it will not be disowned before the dawn. Poetry is made by evaporating the liquid laughter of youth. Poetry is a book of light at night, dispersing clouds of unknowing. It hears the whisper of elephants and sees how many angels dance on the head of a pin and knows how many devils and angels dance on the head of a phallus. It is a humming, a keening, a laughing, a sighing at dawn, a wild, soft laughter. It is the final gestalt of the imagination. Poetry should be emotion, recollected in emotion. Words are living fossils. The poet should piece together the wild beast and make it sing. A poet is only as great as his ear. Too bad if it is tin. Poetry is perpetual revolt against silence, exile, and cunning. The poet, a subversive barbarian at the city gates, constantly challenging our status quo. He is the master ontologist, constantly questioning reality and reinventing it. He mixes drinks out of the insane liquors of the imagination and is perpetually surprised that no one staggers. He should be a dark barker before the tense of existence. Poetry is what can be heard at manholes echoing up Dante's fire escape. Poetry is religion. Religion is poetry. Poetry is not prose. Prose is not poetry. It is the humming of moths as they circle the flame. It is a wood boat moored in the shade under a weeping willow in the bend of a river. The poet must have a wide-angle vision, each look a world glance, and the concrete is most poetic. Poetry is not all heroin, horses, and Rambo. It is also the powerless prayers of airline passengers fastening their seat belts for the final descent. Poetry is the real subject of great prose. It is the unspeakable. It speaks the unspeakable. It utters the inutterable sigh of the heart. Each poem a momentary madness, and the unreal is realist. A poem should still be an insurgent knock on the door of the unknown. A poet should not discuss or teach the craft of poetry or the process of creating it. Let it be a trade secret. <laughs> Mystifying by its mysteries. But when the poet takes off his clothes, his or her ars poetica should inspire. A poem is its own Coney Island of the mind, its own circus of the soul, its own far rockaway of the heart. Let a new lyricism save the world from itself. I think what's missing from contemporary poetry all around the world is lyricism these days. Journal notes are not poetry. Uh, this is a work in progress, figures of speech. Parentheses, these are not haikus. <laughs> Will the rains ever end? Basho claps together his muddy clogs. Will the world ever end? Dawn and the sun runs its fingers over the land. Will time ever end? Sunset and the sun plunges into the sea. The sea roars and uncurls its claws on the beach of time. The sea roaring eats its tongues on the beach. The tongues of waves give voice to the sea, and the sea eats them.
voices of the sea with tongues of waves roar on the shore. Memory, an unmoored ship, drifts in the past. It sounds its foghorn as a word like a gull cry flies by. The dog, lost in the gloaming, barks. The sky, full of leaves and pollen in the high wind, sows trees. The tree, like a lonely hand, stands leafless. The tree believes its panoply of leaves will protect it from acid rain. Think again. Waves of the sea wash away the mandala of life on earth. So uh, I should I said so these are not haiku because these days it seems like everybody that writes a two or three line poem immediately calls it a haiku. But I, I should remind you of Allen Ginsberg's uh, formula for what a haiku is supposed to be. Uh, his formula was the, the poet perceives first some natural phenomenon. Then he, he has a sudden recognition or revelation of what it is and a reaction to it, emotional or otherwise. Well, this may be the last one in this little book, Surreal Migrations. Surreal Migrations of Words. Somewhere between speech and song, a kind of descant rising from word to melody. Voice of the fourth person singular, voice of the poet rising to some ecstasis. Beat of wings on a counterpane, wind in the live oaks. Or on a western morning in fair weather, autumn hills in full sun, ochre against the blue, earth and sky together breathing. Surreal migrations of words, from silence to deep song, quivering of arrows or leaves upon the wind, Phoenician alphabets about to sing, flights of seabirds taking wing, bearing us seaborne over the horizon. This is uh, slightly after Kavafi, the Greek poet. Are there not still fireflies? Are there not still fireflies? Are there not still four-leaf clovers? Is not our land still beautiful? Are fields not full of armed enemies? Are cities never bound by foreign invaders? Never occupied by iron armies speaking iron tongues? Are not our warriors still valiant, ready to defend us? Are not our senators still wearing fine togas? Are we not still a great people in the greatest country in all the world? Is this not still a free country? Are not our fields still ours, our gardens still full of flowers, our ships with full cargoes? Why then do some still fear the barbarians coming, coming, coming in their huddled masses? What is that sound that fills the ear, drumming, drumming? Is not Rome still Rome? Is not Los Angeles still Los Angeles? Are these not the last days of the empire? Is not beauty still beauty and truth still truth? Are there not still poets? Are there not still lovers? Are there not still mothers, sisters, and brothers? Is there not still a full moon once a month? Are there not still fireflies? Are there not still stars at night? Can we not still see them in bowl of night, signaling to us our manifest destinies? Don't cry for me, Indiana. I feel like I just got beamed down by Scotty in Star Trek. What is this place? Indianapolis 2000? Out of the sky I got dreamed down into the Omni Severin Hotel, attached to a huge shopping mall all enclosed. 
all the products of corporate monoculture from somewhere else, shipped in from all over the world. Welcome, says the fancy brochure, to fabulous fashion, exceptional eateries, delightful diversions, dis distinct shops entice you to create a new look, delicate treats tempt you at each and every turn, opportunities to relax and refresh your spirits abound with ample parking and enclosed walkways. Department stores, women's fashions, men's fashions, children's fashions, back home Indiana, Brickyard Authentics, Field of Dreams, Warner Brothers Studio Store, the Franklin Mint, Sunglass Hut International. <laughs> All for sale, including a three-foot plaster Venus de Milo, only $3,229. A $1,339 suede jacket persuades me not. A, a huge window full of styrone breasts covered by flaming red lace braziers. Where are the fringed buckskin shirts in the country of Lincoln's boyhood? Where are the Indians in Indianapolis? Where are the Granger movement, the Greenback Party, the Populist Party? Where Eugene V. Debs when we need him? Middletown swept away. All over Middle America, the same scene. Mom and pop neighborhoods boarded up. Don't cry for me, Indiana. I've got it made in the Omni Severin Hotel. Happy men and women in straight suits walking around with cell phones. National headquarters of the American Legion still around the corner. But Indian ter territory ain't Indian anymore. They've rounded up the Indians and told them there aren't enough of them to be called Indians anymore. They fell among the fallen timbers. They were tipped over at Tippecanoe. I'm an alien Indian fallen into the strange land which America has become. I came looking for you, Indiana, and what did I find? The settlers are gone, Indiana, and a new breed of pioneers has taken over. Out the seventh floor hotel window, I see the shining cars coming over the horizon, covered wagons buried long ago on the banks of the Wabash far away. I hear the cries of the cattlemen in the dusk. The roundup is in full swing. I head out into it in search of the heart of America. Oh, who's your state? Who's your state? Oh, a hotel black man dressed like an admiral holds the door open for me, where away? This is a, a poem I wrote in Prague, uh, Rivers of Light. My mind is racing in the middle of the night. My mind races through the darkness around the world, through the darkness of the world, toward a tunnel of light. It races through the night of Prague, through Staramak Square, with its John Hus sculpture reading, Love Each Other and the Truth Will Triumph. It races on through the night streets, across the Charles Bridge, across the river, at the heart of Prague, across the rivers of the world, across the Rhine, across the Rhone, across the Seine, across the Thames, across Atlantic, across Manhattan, across Great Hudson, into the heart of America. My heart is racing now across America, across Old Man River rolling along. Where's the light? My heart is racing now across terrific Pacific, across the river of yellow light of Sun Yat-sen, across Gandhi's Ganges, across Euphrates, across the Nile, across the Hellespont, across Tiber, across Arno, across Dante's River Styx, through the medieval darkness, into the heart of the tunnel of light. My heart and mind are racing now, together, on the same boat, to the same music, it's not the music of Carmina Burano. It's the music of Don Giovanni. It's Mozart's horn concerto. It's the yellow submarine, yellow submarine, yellow submarine. 
There is a sign in the light at the end of the tunnel. I am trying to read it. We are all trying to read it. Dark figures dance in it in the half-darkness. Light figures dance in it in the half-light. This is a poem I wrote in Sardinia when a city lights a tour of uh, Italy. First stop was Cagliari, Sardinia, and they took us out to ancient ruins, the Nora ruins, Cagliari. Heartless the houses by the Cobalt Sea, by the Nora ruins, heartbroken their mute remains, pulverized villas where Phoenicians lived and loved, then ravaged by pirates plundering the coast from their barkentines. Thermal bathhouses, elegant dressing rooms, mosaic floors raised by fire and storm. Then rebuilt by decadent Romans, they too now vanished, all their bones and buildings, towers and turrets toppled, dust to dust, pumice statues of the victors, sundered under, heartless their crumbled stones, ramparts and battlements thrown down. Valiant warriors stumbled into oblivion where the sea still runs and raves. Cobalt, brilliant blue, lapped in caves upon these winded shores forever and forever. Heartless the sea's eternal lapping, its blind hungering, its white lips frothing, lapping the broken shore, eating time. Heartless, the washing away of sea slugs and centipedes, senators, slaves, and mistresses in thermal baths declined. The gods themselves all helpless against the running sea, brilliant blue of eternity, while on the far horizon of my mind, the old heroic figures gesturing and calling out to us, standing here with guidebooks, calling out to us our own eternal destinies. Oh, <laughs> has anybody got the <laughs> uh, Far Rockaway of the Heart? And it's 101 poems in the style of Coney Island. They're just numbered. Um, number two, I think I'll start with that. It, this is a true story. Driving a cardboard automobile without a license at the turn of the century, my father ran into my mother on a fun ride at Coney Island, having spied each other eating in a French boarding house nearby. And having decided right there and then that she was for him entirely, he followed her into the playland of that evening, where the headlong meeting of their ephemeral flesh on wheels hurtled them forever together. And I, now in the back seat of their eternity, reaching out to embrace them. Number nine, history is made of the lies of the victors, but you would never dream it from the covers of the textbooks, nor from the way the victors are portrayed as super benevolent altruists and lovers of the poor and downtrodden who have never had a chance to rise up and write their own dubious stories in the mystery we call history. A river blurred with tears or a running sea whose fish change color when cast upon the beach. And the filthy rich get filthier or richer or whatever because money really doesn't trickle down but rises like anything hot and they keep getting more medals for bad behavior and for agreeing that yes, justice has been done and the stock market is open to everyone, long live usura. And the jury system is the best ever for preserving the status quota. And in fact, why not have historians who leave blanks in their writings to be filled in variously depending on who's in power? And the computer makes changes easy. And anyway, history isn't really history until it's rewritten, or at least until it repeats itself. And a lot of genocides and massacres maybe never really happened, 
so the record should be corrected like the Holocaust or the rape of Cuba and Nicaragua or Cambodia or Timor or you name it, even though even God can't change historical facts, something that's really happened like a rape or a kiss. But all those natives in all those third and fourth world ghettos really always wanted to be conquered by Cortes, the prophesied fair-haired God, or by Columbus, the great white hope of Spain or Italy. And stolen continents weren't really stolen, but were glorious Christian conquests that saved those heathens from themselves, onward Christian soldiers. And on and on into the sunset go the histories about how God was always on our side anyway. And who is more fit to write the story than the victors themselves who are the fittest, having survived and arrived at the summit of humanity's blind history where the prizes are awarded to the fittest? And anyway, everyone except Plato knows that truth, beauty, goodness are all relative, especially truth as she is extolled in the history books. Amen. Oh, brother, can you spare a dime? You're listening to Lawrence Ferlinghetti, A Defense of Poetry. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get copies of this program and for our special book offer, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, An Indigenous People's History of the United States. Our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call, 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Okay, it'd be generation. <laughs> Created out of whole cloth by Allen Ginsberg. <laughs> I feel that without Allen, there wouldn't have been any beat generation. There would have just been separate great writers on the landscape. Number 12. And Pablo Neruda, that Chilean omnivore of poetry, who wanted to put everything in and take nothing out of his Canto General, said to me in Havana Libre, Hilton, 1959, I love your wide open poetry by which he meant a certain kind of poesia North Americana and its rebel band who rose over the rooftops of tenement boneyards intent on making out and made out of madness a hundred years of beatitude. So boring I'm snoring, cried Joe Public before they came along and busted out the sides of Poetry Chicago and various New Yorker, New Yorkerish poet tasters out of their Westchester cradles endlessly rocking on the Times Square shuttle between the Times Book Review and the Algonquin. While lady critics and gent professors moaned about poetic pederasts at Columbia, they cruised Times Square in America and cruised into history, waving genitals and manuscripts and tuned their holy, unholy voices to a wide-open society that didn't yet exist. And so, jump-started the stalled merry-go-round of American ecstasy, left along East River's echoing shores after old Walt stepped off Brooklyn Ferry into the heart of America. This is um, number 14. The defeated romanticism of T.S. Eliot and his pathetic fallacies haunted my school days. He would not go away. His spent phrases dripped in my inner ear whenever a poet was near. Everyone echoed him, even Anglican preachers. A defrock proofrock and his exhausted libido stalked my boy's school hallways, hand in hand with Mr. Quichotte, the young English tutor. He wore his trousers rolled. Only old graves in first-year Latin would not bow down, sticking to his juvenile and the bucolics. We were sure at night he tippled with Dionysius and flung off his Harris tweed and mounted the lovely housemaid in Honor's cottage 
and heard the mermaids singing each to each, and heard them singing to himself, and off and on made faces at a copy of the wasteland on a very high shelf. 21. O oh, heart, involuntary muscle. O oh, heart, mute lover without a tongue of your own. I would speak for you whenever you, seeing a certain someone, feel love. He with the beating wings, the lark has no tree, the, the crow no roost, the owl no setting place, the nightingale no certain song, and he with the beating wings, no place to light in the neon dawn, his tongue too long ago retuned by those ornithologists the state has hired to make sure the bird population of the world remains stable and pinioned. There is no need to clip its claws. Its tongue will do. Tether the tongue and all falls fallow. The wild seed drops into nothingness. Tether the tongue and all falls into silence. A condition ever desired by tyrants not least of which is the great state with its benevolent bird watchers, with their nets and binoculars, watching out for the wild one, he that bears arrows like a fainting body, he that bears the gold bow, he with the beating wings. A wild, soft laughter. It's uh, poetry, not prose. The title comes from uh, an introduction to Whitman, Whitman's Leaves of Grass by uh, Carl Sandburg, in, in which he says, through all of Whitman's poetry there sounds a wild, soft laughter. This is not a poetry reading at all. It's really a retrospective of my painting. And all around you, you will see pictures at an exhibition of my reality. And I'll be your tour guide to the strange, exciting scenes. So just pretend it's paint, not words. And you will no doubt see what paint and what perspective I have stolen from Goya and Picasso and Motherwell and Klein and de Kooning and all the other seeing eyes of my generation in Plato's cave. So open up your third eyes and see my long landscape laid out before you as I have seen it shimmering in the shaken light of the late, late, late 20th century. Avioncitos, the little airplanes of the heart, with their brave little propellers. What can they do against the winds of darkness? Even as butterflies are beaten back by hurricanes, yet do not die, they lie in wait wherever, wherever they can hide and hang, their fine wings folded. And when the killer wind dies, they flutter forth again into the new-blown light live as leaves. One of these days, when I am old, will they accept what I say as the absolute truth and call me maestro and pin the cross of light on me? And if they do, oh, if they do, will it have been worth it after all, all the broken sentences begun again, all the illusory triumphs which could only happen on Sundays? when all the banks are closed and the bankrupt church is open and all the lotteries won only to find the tickets printed with evaporating ink and the last horse in the last race coming in last and I standing in the winner's circle with a wreath around my neck 
wondering which blonde will kiss me as the mariachi band plays Happy Days Are Here Again or Battle Hymn of the Republic. And a parade goes by to the distant plaza where imbeciles wearing tinsel wings drop from the trees. Ascending over Ohio. Actually, I was uh, uh, just leaving uh, the, the Kenneth Patchen Festival in Warren, Ohio. Ascending over Ohio. The angels coming down the aisles, the angels coming down the aisles have their wings on backwards. They're not wings for flying, but gossamer illusions in my TV mind, making these airline ladies the ministers of my madness, even though each one wears the same airline uniform with a spare set of wings on lapels. Each is also my ministering angel, my belle dame sans merci. Come down to earth to fetch me for the final flight to the heavens, where fly back and forth the trans-world spirits of all the greatest gods. Buddha floats by holding the Christ child in a Chinese scroll of sky, unrolling before us as we ascend over Warren, Ohio, where 50,000 lost bodies look up as I release a shower of golden parachutes with 50,000 reinflatable balloons and 50,000 valid passports to the rest of the imaginary universe where live and love and sing the most ravenously beautiful bodies and souls in all eternity as one comes down the aisle now spreading her gossamer wings over me. This really happened. Not a thing invented. A report on a happening in North Beach, San Francisco. When the lovely bride and groom came out onto the grand front steps of the Catholic Church of St. Peter and Paul at 4.32 in the afternoon, a knot of natives was waiting at the bottom of the steps, including a bunch of bridesmaids and family friends, all of whom were holding on to the straight strings of bright green balloons, which were the exact same green as the bridesmaids' dresses and the bride was holding on to a pure white balloon, which was naturally the same as her wedding gown, and the groom was holding on to a black balloon <laughs> that matched his black tailcoat. And the newlyweds proceeded to knot the strings of their two balloons together. I saw it. <laughs> and then, with a kind of whoop, they let them soar away while at the same instant all the people holding green balloons let theirs go with a little cheer. And the beatific bride and her handsome groom laughed and waved as they descended toward the others with never a look up at the balloons that were zooming straight up into blue sky and becoming smaller and smaller every instant, while the newlyweds gay gaily climbed onto the waiting imitation San Francisco cable car upon which the bridesmaids were already perched and nobody casting ever a glance at the flying balloons that now seemed to be heading south over downtown San Francisco with the black and white balloons keeping close together on their tether while the green balloons started spreading out all over and the groom and bride took their special seats at the front of the cable car, which wasn't a real cable car at all, since it had rubber wheels not attached to any cable, which, which would have restricted its destiny. And the happy couple were still waving and laughing and kissing each other and ringing and ringing the cable car bell while the balloons that nobody looked at were now at least a couple of miles high in the distant sky that now seemed to be growing darker and darker with huge banks of cirrus clouds to the west toward which the tiny balloons now turned like a flock of birds winging seaward with two of them still close together, with the others strung out further and further so that they began to look like lost sheep in an alpine landscape of towering white mountains 
while the cable car of a sudden started up with a great clanging of its bell as everyone cheered and waved without ever a look at the disappearing balloons of their lives, so far away now that they looked like very distant mountain climbers scaling the walls of great glaciers in the final working out of their separate fates, except for the two climbers still roped together. As the cable car zoomed off westward up Filbert Street and on toward Russian Hill, over which in farther, farthest sky still could be seen the tiny black dots of the climbers going higher and higher and disappearing into their destinies, in which even the two roped together would, in the normal course of life, lose their breath and shrivel away and fall to earth out of air. got this poem in Pescara, which is on the Adriatic, in a tiny, tiny uh, town, uh, not even a town, just a hamlet called Grotamare, which is sea caves. Turquoise sea off Grotamare, Grotamare and its sea caves echoing beside the Adriatic. Echo of siren song still reaches me. Inside the silent train, I, I, once more the lost voices calling under sea. Ah, but naturally, it is all illusion. The fog lies heavily in the olive trees. Morning is made by the clock and not by light, which only exists in our minds. Men and women sleep in their usual darkness. Only the light asleep in their eyes gives any hint of an iridescent future, an incandescent destiny. Only far out, beyond the far islands, the sea sends back its turquoise answer. The sea, that's the only thing wrong with Baldur. There's no sea here. Same with Santa Fe. I like these... <laughs> Love these, this landscape, but that's what I miss. Uh, it's uh, La Mer. Mother. Mother! La Mer! <laughs> Madre. Anyway, I got to be near it, and I think it must be some of my Italian ancestors. When I was in Portugal, a local poet took me to his town, which is uh, called Nazareth, a very, very small fishing town. And he was the same way as I was. He kept saying, the sea, the sea. La mer, la mer. <laughs> and uh, il mar, el mar. Italian, Spanish, French. It was all the same. And we uh, sort of went along, the, ran along the beach, roaring at the sea. So uh, this is a, a sea poem. Poet as fisherman. As I grow older, I perceive life has its tail in its mouth. And other poets, other painters, are no longer any kind of competition. It's the sky that's the challenge. The sky that still needs deciphering. Even as, a, as astronomers strain to hear it with their huge electric ears. The sky that whispers to us constantly the final secrets of the universe. The sky that breathes in and out as if it were the inside of a mouth of the cosmos. The sky that is the land's edge also and the sea's edge also. The sky with its many voices and no God. The sky that engulfs a sea of sound and echoes it back to us as in a wave against a seawall. Whole poems, whole dictionaries rolled up in a thunderclap. And every sunset, an action painting. And every cloud, a, a book of shadows through which wildly fly the vowels of birds about to cry. And the sky is clear to the fishermen 
Even if overcast, he sees it for what it is, a mirror of the sea about to fall on him in his wood boat on the dark horizon. We have to think of him as the poet, forever face to face with old reality, where no birds fly before a storm, and he knows what's coming down before the dawn, and he's his own best lookout, listening for the sound of the universe and singing out his sightings of the land of the living. That was with quite a few steals from T.S. Eliot's uh, The Dry Salvages, which is in the Four Quartets, which he wrote about the coast off of uh, Gloucester. To my mind, the Four Quartets are unjustly ignored these days. I think it's the greatest poetry that Eliot wrote and one of the great poems of the 20th century. Four quartets. Uses of poetry. So what is the use of poetry these days? What use is it? What good is it? These days and nights in the age of Autogeddon. In which poetry is what has been paved over to make a freeway for armies of the night. As in that palm paradiso just north of Nicaragua, where promises made in the plazas will be betrayed in the backcountry. Or in the so green fields of the Concord Naval Weapons Station, where armed trains run over green protesters, where poetry is made important by its absence, the absence of birds in a summer landscape, the lack of love in a bed at midnight, or lack of light at high noon in the not-so-white house. For even, even bad poetry has relevance for what it does not say, for what it leaves out. Yes, what of the sun streaming down in the meshes of morning? What of white nights and mouths of desire? Lips saying Lulu, Lulu, Lulu over and over. And all things born with wings that sing. And far, far cries upon a beach at nightfall. And light that ever was on land and sea. And caverns measured out by man where once the sacred rivers ran. Near cities by the sea through which we walk and wander absently, astounded constantly by the mad spectacle of existence. And all these talking animals on wheels, heroes and heroines with a thousand eyes, with bent hearts and hidden over souls, with no more myths to call their own, constantly astounded as I am still by these bare-faced bipeds in clothes, these stand-up tragedians, pale idols in the night streets, trance dancers in the dust of the last waltz. In this time of gridlock, Autogeddon, where the voice of the poet still sounds distantly, the voice of the fourth of the fourth person singular, the voice within the voice of the turtle, the face behind the face of the race, a book of light at night, the very voice of life as Whitman heard it, a wild, soft laughter. Ah, but to free it still from the word processor of the mind. And I am a reporter for a newspaper on another planet come to file a down-to-earth story of the what, when, where, how, and why of this astounding life down here and of its strange clowns in control of it, the curious clowns in control of it, with hands upon the windowsills of dread demonic mills casting their own dark shadows into the earth's great shadow in the end of time unseen in the supreme Hashish of our dream.
You were just listening to Lawrence Ferlinghetti, A Defense of Poetry. He spoke at Naropa University in Boulder, Colorado. Lawrence Ferlinghetti, poet, publisher, and defender of freedom of expression, passed away in February 2021. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and progressive and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, A Defense of Poetry, and for our special book offer, Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that number is 1-800-444-1977. Or you can go to our website, alternativeradio.org. If you'd like a free copy of a printed transcript, PDF, or MP3 of this program, just give us a call at one 800 444 Special thanks to Naropa University, the Jack Kerouac School of Disembodied Poetics, and City Lights Booksellers and Publishers. Joe Ritchie is our General Manager and Editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. We go out with Italy's Fabrizio De Andre. Teste fashion chacalea, e chabre seize gangalina. A mele resta do valeia, pé no remena lua fortina. Rinto mesmo do mar, quem peixe tondo, que quando vede brute, o vacho fundo. Rinto mesmo do mar, quem peixe pala, que quando vede pele, o venha cá. É o posto de ano que a degeneve Se supide é gambe, me brace neve Da lua cansula cantar tanto Eu louça cancho em travante o teu Vulga até da vulga, preencho neve Esponja, esponja o remo
And you've been listening to Lawrence Ferlinghetti, a defense of poetry from the archives of Alternative Radio out of Boulder, Colorado. Nearly 102 years old, Ferlinghetti died in February of this year. I'm Laura Jones. Radioactive is a production of Listener's Community Radio of Utah. Thanks for listening. Have a great night.